You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. We will spend most of our time in Luke chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to set it up a little bit differently. We are looking towards uh, the Christmas holiday, and we are thinking about Jesus and the Bible. Um, The Bible is Jesus' book. Every book in the Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we began in Genesis and we started to walk through the creation story. And we went to John and we saw Jesus in the story of creation. And we saw the fall of man in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And in the judgment of Adam and Eve, we saw the promise of an heir, one who would crush the head of the serpent, whose heel itself would be bruised, but who would deal finally with Satan and evil. We saw the curse of death on humankind. We saw Adam's consequence for his sin, that he would work the land, that he would struggle to survive, that it would not yield food and sustenance easily for him, and that at the end of his life, he would return to the ground from which he came, And we have the phrase, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Symbolically of that judgment that's still used today. And we looked at Abraham. And the promise of one who would come from Abraham. um, From whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This Messiah type figure, the seed of Abraham who would bless all of the nations and the families and the peoples of the earth. And then from the book of Genesis onward, we follow the lineage of Abraham. We follow that lineage down to Egypt where Moses is. We see Joseph and his coat of many colors and his being sold into slavery and his account with Potiphar's wife and his time in prison and ultimately the salvation from famine of all of Israel as they resettle in Egypt. And 400 years of bondage later, we see Moses arrive on the scene to lead them out of Egypt. The law is given in the wilderness as we follow the line of Abraham. And the people of Abraham wander in their rejection of God for 40 years before Joshua leads them into the promised land of Israel. And in the promised land they wander and rebel. And through numerous judges, God saves them time and again from their enemies. Some of them we know, Gideon and Samson. Some of them are less familiar to us. But there they are for us in the book of Judges. As God continues to rescue a people inexplicably, it seems, who have rejected him. Why doesn't God just move on from these people? Why doesn't He just start over? Why don't they suffer the same fate of many other ancient nations? To simply cease from existence. To be conquered and put aside and their name, Israel, remembered no more. Why does He persist? Why does the Old Testament track And the reason is because of the promise made to Abraham that he would, in his seed, in his offspring, have an heir in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
And they resettle and they, they demand of God after a period of judges, give us a king. And Samuel, the prophet at the time, says, you don't realize what you're saying when you say, give us a king, Israel. You're not rejecting me as your, your judge, your prophet. You're not rejecting Samuel. You're rejecting God. They say, nevertheless, give us a king. We're sick of being oppressed by our enemies. We need a king, and we need an army, and we need taxes, and we need palaces, and we need codes. And so God gives them a king, a king that they deserve, Saul. And after Saul does all of the things that God warned him that he would do, God gives them a better king, a right king, a king after God's own heart, King David. And to David, we saw last week how he promises in 2 Samuel, Ah, but your son I will call my son, and I will establish his kingdom forever. And his throne and of his reign there will be no end forever and ever. That's all 2 Samuel. And so now we've drawn from the line of Abraham down through the line of Israel, Abraham's offspring. And now we've identified the line of David, who is from the tribe of Judah, whom Israel and Egypt blessed and said the scepter will not depart from Judah. And now we have the family line from which this Messiah figure will come. And the Bible continues to track. Except David has a son named Solomon, who goes through ups and downs and ultimately does not serve God faithfully in his life. And in the judgment of Solomon... The nation after Solomon's kingdom is split. It's divided. The northern kingdom, made up of the majority of the people, have a new king for themselves. And the southern kingdom have a separate king. And the southern kingdom remains somewhat faithful to God where there are sacrifices and the temple and the worship of God in place. And the northern kingdom, because they want nothing to do with the southern kingdom anymore, come up with an entirely new religious system and a new line of priests. And dating all the way back to their exodus from Egypt, they create two golden calf statues to be worshipped in the northern kingdom of Israel. And after a number of years, God judges the northern kingdom of Israel, many kings getting progressively worse, and they are wiped out by the Assyrians and only the southern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, remains. And finally, they too, in their rebellion against God, are judged and they are conquered by the Babylonians. And at this point in time, there is no more nation of Israel. There is no more king of Israel. And it's during this time, during the Babylonian captivity, that a man by the name of Daniel comes to prominence. And Daniel remains faithful to this God, which is no small thing, if you think about it. It would be challenging to continue to remain faithful to a God who seems to have broken all of his promises. There is no king on the throne of David anymore. Israel is not in the promised land anymore. There has been no great explanation other than the judgment issued by the prophets and yet Daniel in captivity remains faithful and he serves God faithfully and he prays to God for the reestablishing of his kingdom. And in chapter 7, Daniel has what can only be described as a remarkably detailed vision. 
Now, the context of this is Daniel lived around 600 years before the time of Christ, just approximately. We know because the king who he was captured by was Nebuchadnezzar, and history records the story for us very well, how Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and destroyed it, and how he took captives home, and then he came back because Jerusalem rebelled again, and not only did he lay siege to it this time, but he completely leveled it to the ground. And so historically and biblically, these stories align, and they're very close in timeline, and there's no dispute really among historians about the timeline of these things. And Daniel has, again, a vision which secular historians can only explain away by saying, well, it's not true that Daniel had this vision in the time frame in which it's described. This part of Daniel was added later on, hundreds of years afterwards, because the futuristic account of what will happen in the days after Daniel undeniably took place. Because secular history doesn't believe in prophecy, doesn't believe in miracles, doesn't believe in the plan of a divine God, then they say, well, it was written after the fact to make it look as if it were real. Let me tell you what's in the vision in Daniel 7. Daniel sees a clear and unmistakable depiction of the Babylonian Empire being conquered by the Persian Empire. And then the Persian Empire being conquered by the Greek Empire. And then the Greek Empire being conquered by the Roman Empire. And this is why, when it's laid out, secular historians, they don't say, well, these prophecies could have meant anything. No, they, they were too specific for that. What they say is, it was forged and written later. And their reason is because it couldn't have possibly been written back then because we don't believe in prophecy. That's the reason. But here's the thing. No matter if you say it was written a couple hundred years later during the time of the Greek Empire, no matter, here's the issue. It was definitely in place hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. There's no debate about that. Matter of fact, in the Greek Empire, the entire Hebrew text was translated into the new modern language of the day, the Greek language. And this is the text that's in circulation at the time of Jesus, hundreds of years later. You might hear of it sometimes called the Septuagint. It's actually one of many attempts to translate the Hebrew into the modern language of the Greeks. We don't go around reading their Greek New Testament. We read the English New Testament. They wanted the same thing. They wanted people to be able to read the Bible, their Old Testament, in their tongue, which was now Greek. This is hundreds of years after Daniel. And we have it, the book of Daniel in Greek, in the Septuagint. Sometimes in your Bible you may see it referred to as the LXX, that's the Septuagint, translated for us. And in that book, there are prophecies about Jesus. And no one can claim they were written after the fact. No one can claim they didn't come hundreds of years before Christ. And in that same vision of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees way forward into the future things he does not understand, things he would never understand, things he was meant only to record. He sees the potential for an entire world united under one leader. And he doesn't understand it. How could a world, how could the entire world be united under one leader? You've got to imagine, this is a time when they hadn't even discovered the entire world. They weren't sailing boats across the ocean. And even the world that they knew of could not possibly be conquered by one person. 
Even Alexander the Great could not possibly conquer all of the world. He extended his ventures as far east as he could, and deep into China and the region as he could, and even he could not conquer the whole world. And he sees a vision of not only an entire world conquered and unified, but he sees a vision of one figure coming to a head. Now for us, not hard to imagine. We live in a day of global communication. We live in a day where any of us can pull a phone out of our pocket right now and send a message to China that will be instantly read. But in Daniel's day and age, that stuff was science fiction. And what bothers him most about this vision is that there is one world leader who takes the scene saying, and this is a quote, pompous and arrogant words about God, the Most High God, and about the saints, His people. And he begins to slaughter and kill the saints of the people of the Most High God, and Daniel is deeply disturbed by this. In the middle of this vision, he sees the judgment of this figure, and then he sees this, and this is verse 13 and 14, Daniel 7, just listen. I was watching in these visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now we hear that phrase, one like the Son of Man, and we're conditioned to think of Jesus because the Son of Man became Jesus' title that he used most frequently in all the Gospels of himself. But in the Old Testament, the Son of Man was not a frequent title. It meant a human. What Daniel is actually saying here is, I saw in these visions, and there was a person that looked like a man, not an angel, not a god, a man. And that's shocking to Daniel because of what it says. This man is coming with the clouds of heaven. Men do not come with the clouds of heaven. They don't go with the clouds of heaven. They walk around on two feet. They try not to die. They're sinners. They're fallen. They're broken. But this is the shocking thing of Daniel's vision. He sees the answer to this antichrist who will arise, this one ruler of the world who will arise, and the answer is one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, which is a title of God. A man comes before God and isn't destroyed. Now this is Daniel. He's out of the Hebrew tradition. The significance of this is not lost on him. Men do not merely approach God and live. Sinners do not merely walk before a holy God and survive. This is in the time of the priest when they would purify themselves and cleanse themselves and take care fearfully for themselves just to enter in to the tabernacle or the temple of God and offer sacrifices before his altar. No one walks up to God. But that's what Daniel sees. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. He is escorted in. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Wait a minute. I thought all peoples, languages, and nations should serve God. But here it says, in Daniel's vision, 
One like the Son of Man is brought before God and it was given to Him that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him, a man. What idolatry is this? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Daniel sees Jesus. And he doesn't understand it and he tells the angel, I don't understand this. And the angel says, seal up these things, Daniel. They are way far in the future. Record them and write them down. But you know what? Daniel continues to wrestle with this. He is an old man. (laughs) Even by our standards, an old man. He has spent 70 years of his life in captivity in Babylon. 70 years since Jerusalem was destroyed. 70 years since God was worshipped by his people. Israel is an ancient memory. A lot can change in 70 years. A lot has changed for us in 70 years. Two generations of Israelites had been born and raised in captivity that did not serve God. And he wants to know when will these things come to an end? When will this Son of Man show up? And he is praying in Daniel chapter 9 for his people because he knows God had pronounced a 70-year captivity as judgment and he knows the 70 years is up and he is praying and praying oh lord forgive us oh lord heal us oh lord reestablish us not for our name's sake we don't deserve it but for your name's sake and all the promises that you have made to your people oh lord heal oh lord forgive this is in daniel chapter 9 and it says when he is near the point of death fasting and praying, going without food and praying that he is visited by the angel Gabriel. Not insignificant that it is the angel Gabriel. The same Gabriel who will show up in the Gospels and pronounce the arrival of Jesus Christ shows up in Daniel chapter 9 to pronounce to Daniel the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the words that he has for Daniel, he says this, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now we hear that and we think, well, 70 weeks, a year, about a year and a half, right? No, 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 no. The word weeks in the English is the word sevens in the Hebrew, seven days in a week, sevens. Seventy weeks means 70 sevens are determined for your people. Seventy periods of seven. They counted and used the words. We hear it, one thing is determined for your people. Daniel understood this because that's how they counted and used the words. We hear it, we, it takes some explaining, but he knew what it meant. Now, it could have been weeks of years, it could have been weeks of days, it could have been 490 days, 490 years, but the context of it makes it clear it's not days because all that he describes will happen. Listen to this. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, and this is what's going to happen in those 70 weeks. Listen to this. To finish the transgression... To make an end of sins. That's a a lot to accomplish. To make an end of sins. We haven't seen that yet. To make reconciliation for iniquity. Think about that for a minute. What is reconciliation for iniquity? 
How are men reconciled to God? Well, if you're a Christian, you know the answer to that, right? Faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's reconciliation. Well, that's included in these 70 weeks. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened yet? (laughs) Maybe only in the spiritual sense. Certainly not the real sense. To seal up vision and prophecy. To put an end to all these visions and prophecies. to, to, To wrap it all. And to anoint the most holy. And this has got to be what catches Daniel's attention. Because this is what he had seen in chapter 7. This one like the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days. And then here is Gabriel's next statement. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is in ruins. The Babylonians did not leave one stone standing on another. They they didn't just destroy it. They raised it, meaning leveled it. They were sick of these rebellious Israelites who would not simply pay their taxes and stay in line. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, 7 and 62 equals 69. The whole thing is 70 weeks, but 69 lead up to this Messiah, the Prince. And then he tells Daniel, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So he tells Daniel a few things. First, this is not the end of Jerusalem. It'll be rebuilt. It'll be restored. And more than that, You can start counting, Daniel, from the command to go and rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Your people can start counting from then 69 weeks or 483 years because Messiah the Prince is coming. Don't worry, Daniel, the street will be built again, the wall, even in troublesome times. We get that Ezra, Nehemiah, you can read in the Old Testament the difficulty they had rebuilding Jerusalem. But friends, this prophecy of 480 years from that command to the time of Christ, this drove the expectation of the Messiah when Jesus was born. Now, The command was right in the 440s. There are people with different beliefs about when that command to go rebuild Jerusalem took place, but it was certainly right around 440 B.C. There's no doubt about that. That's when Israel went to rebuild that wall. And Jesus was in his 30s when he died. And he was not born at 0 A.D., but sometime 2, 3, 4 A.D. They were expecting this Messiah The math added up. Josephus, a non-Christian historian. Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jewish historian. Matter of fact, many of his own Jewish people considered him a traitor because he traveled with the Roman armies. Josephus, at 70 AD, was in the armies of the Romans outside of Jerusalem when it was under siege. And when all of Israel would be crucified or sold into slavery and Jerusalem after the time of Jesus would once again be destroyed. He was in the armies with Titus. 
with the Roman generals. He was in the armies recording and writing what was happening. He was not a Christian. He was not even a good Jew by their own measurements. But he wrote the histories of the Jewish people during that period of time. And he writes about this Jesus who was crucified. And he writes about the, all the messiahs that had risen that people thought were the answer to this prophecy of Daniel. They were living in a time of expectation. You might remember the story of the Magi. You remember the Magi who come and visit? And they, you know, they follow, the story is they follow a moving star and a lot of it gets mythologized beyond what I think it should be. But the Magi come and the Bible says these wise men, they come and they are searching for Jesus. He who is born King of the Jews. The one not made King of the Jews, that's what Herod was. He was made King of the Jews by the Romans. But they were searching for the one born King of the Jews because they had seen his star. They came from the east. You know, in Daniel chapter two, he was put in charge of all of the wise men of Babylon. He spent his entire career, 70 years, in and among the eastern mystics of Babylon. And somehow, some way, they developed an anticipation with a calendar of when the wise, the wise men would journey to go recognize the king of the Jews who would be born. And they show up, and it wasn't just three of them. It wasn't three guys on camels. There were three major gifts, but this was an entourage. The Bible tells us that when they enter the city, when they go in, they create such a stir, they get the king's attention himself. Three rich guys on camels don't get anybody's attention in Jerusalem. No, this was a traveling party who had come from the east to see the king of the Jews. Herod was concerned about this. Why would Herod be concerned? He had the power of the Roman army behind him. He had a kingdom in Jerusalem that was by many considered to be the last great kingdom. He had rebuilt a massive temple. He had established and consolidated power. The Romans were happy with him. He had created peace in Jerusalem by their own standards. Why is he so concerned? Because he is worried about all of these messiahs who are supposedly rising up, and the people who are going out to evaluate and check them. One by one, he is concerned that one of these guys will lead a revolt and create such a conflict that the Romans will depose him and be done with him. So we know the story that he goes to execute all of the small children in that particular region, all the small baby boys, because he does not want any competitive power from all these prophetical messiahs that might arise. Well, now I want to read with you from Luke's gospel. The, the story that we typically read at Christmas time, but I want to read through it now. And I want to pause at various points just to read the prophetic passages behind him. This is Luke chapter 2. I want to read beginning in verse 1. Now listen to this. And it came to pass in those days that princes first took from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. 
So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now you might notice that there are historically recognizable names here. This is not written as a mythology. This is written with anticipation that people will go and look into these things for themselves. This is written as a historical record. We know who Caesar Augustus is. We know when he reigned. We know who Quirinius was. We can line these things up. We're meant to hear from Luke that during this time, these events unfolded. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. Now you might remember these verses from last week, just from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That is 600 years before Caesar Augustus. In the land of Galilee of the Gentiles, Zebulun and Naphtali by their ancient tribal names. You people who have suffered on the outskirts of the Gentile dominions, you people who have been on the outskirts of invasion after invasion, you who were lightly esteemed, you who were oppressed by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, those people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And it just so happens that this man Joseph from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth came into Judea. This is back to Luke. The city of David, which is called Bethlehem. You might remember from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, hundreds of years before Jesus. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Hundreds of years before Jesus, that was recorded. No one can say it was written afterwards. It is what it is. And this Joseph from Galilee came to Bethlehem. Why? Well, there was a census and it says he was of the house and lineage of David. Bethlehem was David's home. So he had to travel to the city of his fathers to partake in the census. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 14. To David, God said, When you are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
That was hundreds of years before Jesus. Verse 5 of Luke 2. Joseph went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields. Now we know the story from Christmas. We know what's going to happen. Shepherds, for some reason, inexplicably, are visited by angels and are told to go worship the baby Jesus who was born. But what is wrong with this story? I mean, why shepherds of all people? I mean, there are lots of different people around Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the surrounding villages and cities. There are lots of different people in Bethlehem. There were so many people, it says there was not room enough in the inn. They're staying out with the animals. Why go out into the field? If God is going to do something miraculous to bring people in, why go out into the field and get shepherds? Well, John the Baptist knew why, didn't he? When John sees Jesus as a full-grown man approaching him to be baptized, this is what John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because this Messiah was not just a man. He would be the sacrificial Lamb of God. So at His birth and at His coming, God went and got some shepherds. I'm reminded of the story of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 22. When God tells Abraham, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah to a place there where I will show you. And there sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. Now this is Isaac. This is this is the line that we are following throughout the whole Old Testament. This is why we care about the Israelites, the Jews. This is Isaac. This is the son of promise. This is the one they waited a hundred years for. And God says, take now your son, your only son, which should make us think of Jesus, your only son whom you love. And take him to the land of Moriah. That would be Jerusalem. And take him up on a hill. Where did they take Jesus to be crucified? Up on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. A place called Golgotha. And God tells Abraham there, offer your son to me as a burnt sacrifice. And they go and they wander all the way there. It's a three days journey to the land. And God shows them a mountain. Not any mountain. Not a mountain of their own choosing. A mountain. I think I know which mountain it was. And Abraham and Isaac walk up this mountain to this place. And on the way up, Isaac says, Father, here is the wood. And here is the fire. But where is the sacrifice? 
And in Genesis 22, verse 8, this is what Abraham tells his son. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. (laughs) Abraham believes that God will provide a lamb and spare his son. And as he raises the knife to sacrifice Isaac in verse 12, a voice, do not lay, not withheld your son, your anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And I get emotional. I wish I didn't, but I get emotional because I think my son and my daughters are not under the judgment of God because God has provided a lamb. And I don't see how anybody could be so dense as to miss the significance of this. There's a reason he tells Abraham, who had an only son, a son of promise, to go do this thing. Because it would be God's only son. Can't you hear the language of John 3.16 in Genesis 22? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Abraham did. He believed that God would provide a sacrifice to save him and his family. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So at the birth of the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world, there are shepherds. It says in verse 8 of Luke 2, Shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. I would be afraid too. Let me tell you how easy it would be for me. I would be afraid if you just took one of those floodlights that you have, Ryan, and turned it on outside my house at night, and I would be afraid. I'd think, what's going on? All of a sudden, Bam! For them, the lights come on and there are angelic beings present. Not the the little goofy looking ones that were in my grandma's china cabinet. You know, with the little porcelain wings and the heart. Real supernatural beings. See, it's one thing to bring in shepherds because Jesus is the Lamb of God, but there should also be angels because Jesus is from heaven. What a blend of celebration. (laughs) Can you see that? On the one hand, you have the supernatural creations of God announcing the coming Messiah from heaven. And on the other hand, you have shepherds in the field who are watching sheep. And there's something there. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy to all people. Now that is one of the most underrated verses of the Bible. Because the shepherds, for one, just found out they're not going to die. If you saw supernatural beings show up, 
The first thing you would want to know, is this good news or bad news? And they say, don't be afraid, it's good news. I bring you good tidings of great joy to who? To Israel? To all people. This is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. That in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. The word Christ means Messiah, the Lord. Lord here meaning King. Messiah, Prince. Messiah, King is born. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. Every Christmas I love that song, you know, peace on earth. You know why I like it? Because the singer is wrestling with what this means. If you sing the verse of that song, if you listen to the verse of that song, he's saying, I looked around, there is no peace on earth, I said. That's the song. Jesus did not come to bring peace among men. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. People who will follow me will be put to death. People who will follow me will be persecuted. People who follow me will be martyred. And let me tell you something. If you think you have it easy in the United States today, I tell you Christians are being martyred around the world today. Last week, And their only offense is that they believe in Messiah, the Lord. And don't think that we will always be so fortunate to escape that here. You have Thanksgiving this week. You ought to be thankful that we can gather here and no one is showing up to burn down our building. To torture us. Don't go around the table and say what you're thankful for without that coming up. What is this peace on earth? It's not peace among men. It is peace from God to men. It is the answer of the prophecy to Eve in Genesis 3. That from her would come one who would undo the work of Satan, who would crush the head of the serpent. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Who would put an end to Satan's work. Who would allow human beings who are born in sin to have peace with a righteous and holy God. Jesus is God's olive branch. Jesus is God's extension of peace. He is the peace offering and all who trust in Him will be saved. All who trust in Him will be saved. What must I do to be saved? They asked Peter in the book of Acts. Believe on the Lord Jesus and repent and be baptized. 
So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, the book told us he would come. And when he came, his name did not become great at the head of an army, He never sat on an earthly throne. He ministered for three years and was crucified as a fraud. And yet today, you don't know the name of a single other false Messiah from that time. You know the name of only one, Jesus of Nazareth. And you are not the only one. I am not the only one that knows the name Jesus of Nazareth. He has become a blessing to all the nations of the earth, just as it was written. The honest thing about it is that people don't believe in Jesus. To me, the most miraculous thing about it is that he can go from being a crucified Messiah to a name that people bend the knee to all over the world today. There is no other thing like it in the history of the world, and there never will be. Because it has been foretold at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. No one else's. There is nothing else like it. I don't need anything else to convince me. I don't need to see Jesus walk on water. I don't need to see him him feed 5,000 people. He has convinced me that across this globe, a poor baby born in a manger to poor people in the poorest part of Israel is pronounced and proclaimed to be the Messiah everywhere. And it's with very little hyperbole that I can say everywhere throughout Australia, throughout the African nations, throughout the Middle East, There are so many faithful Christians in the Middle East that every time one of the Islamic states puts them to death, they rise again and there's a whole new group to put to death. Throughout China, the most, just sheer numbers, the most amount of Christians in the world are in China. Throughout Russia, throughout Eastern Europe, And even in our country. What kind of Jesus is this? I want to leave you with one more prophecy here. This is from Isaiah chapter 42. And James, I know it's a weird passage to read during the scripture, but I thank you for reading it. Here is Isaiah 42. What kind of man is Jesus? Here's the prophecy first. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. In other words, he will be gentle. He won't see a reed and snap it in half. He won't see, you know, a a candle with all of its light almost gone and snuff it out. He will be a gentle, humble man. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands. Some of your translations may say the islands. The idea here is the far-reaching, unexplored reaches of the earth. The coastlands shall wait for his law, for his reign. That's what we're doing today. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to all people and spirit to those who walk on it. I, Yahweh, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. I will give you as a covenant to the people. You Think of the Lord's Supper when you read that. This is the covenant of my blood. As a light to the Gentiles. Do we have a single Jewish person in here today worshiping the Jewish Messiah? To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I don't know much about my lineage. I don't know about who I was or who my people were, or the people that I came from, but I don't come from Israel. You go back far enough in my lineage, you'll find human sacrificing pagan idol worshipers, I'm sure, probably a bunch of them. You'll find people whose morals is nothing more than the extension of their own ambition. You will find exactly what we see in every place where atheism is embraced and people are nothing more than objects to profit from. But God has opened the eyes of my fathers and he's opened my eyes and he's brought me out of the prison of sin and he's brought me out of the darkness that I lived in. Now here is Jesus in Matthew 12. We'll end here. Here's the fulfillment of these things. Now listen. Now when Jesus had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with a withered hand. Teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a guy there with a a lame hand. It's all you've seen these before, crunched up and can't move. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. In other words, you're going to heal this? It's funny that they didn't think he couldn't heal the man. They're trying to trap him by having him heal the man. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, of course I'm going to heal this man. <laughs> you think I... If you had an animal that was going to die on the Sabbath, you'd save the animal for your own financial gain. You're telling me this man isn't more valuable than that? 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Now, this was a synagogue. This was a local gathering place. They knew this guy. This was not some stranger brought in for the show. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him, because, of course, that's what you should do. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed them, and he healed them all. Had a guy come up to me after my message on spiritual gifts a couple weeks ago. Had a guy come up to me, and he said, well, I've seen somebody be healed before. I said, that's awesome. I don't doubt that people can be healed. I just don't think that it's a spiritual gift with somebody going around wielding the power. I said, let me ask you something. When you saw the person healed from scoliosis and they were walking again, did the same guy go to the hospital and start healing people there too? He said, no, because it doesn't happen that way. It's only certain people at certain times. I said, well, when Jesus healed people, it often says, and then he healed them all. I believe in miracles as much as the next person. I don't believe somebody's walking around a living, breathing, healing machine today. If they are, they're the most discompassionate person in the world. That's not what we see from Jesus. Yet he warned them not to make it known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. This is the humility of Jesus the man. You know, I just leave you with this today. Is Jesus a man that you can trust? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Love and forgiveness, and patience, and kindness, and grace flow from Jesus Christ. The reason why people serve Jesus all over the world today is because He gives rest for their souls. There is no rest for your soul in Islam. There's no guarantee of salvation in Islam. You can be as faithful a Muslim as you want to be your entire life. And the only guarantee you have from their holy scriptures that you will go to their heaven when you die is if you're involved in the slaughter of infidels and a jihad. Other than that, you just better hope you've done enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Let me ask you, could you sleep at night if you thought you were going to eternal hell? Unless you found a way to do enough good things to outdo all your bad things? How many bad things have you done? You want to go to sleep every night with the burden of, I've got to find a way to make up for all the bad things I did today. Is that rest? Is that peace? There's no rest or peace in Hinduism, in Buddhism, where you hope you go through enough reincarnations until you finally get to the top of the food chain. There's no peace in that. You got, I got to live a thousand lifetimes to get to a place of eternal peace? 
And if I don't do a good enough job, I may go down the ladder and live a worse life than the one I have now. There's no peace in that. These religions enslave men. They rob you of peace, and that's why they're so effective for manipulating people. But in the Son of God, we have a gentle and lowly Savior who calls you. Come to me, all of you who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. You can trust Jesus. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we thank you for your son who has demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died. Father, all of your revelation to all humanity from the beginning of time till now points to this Prince of Peace. Help us not to marginalize him to many of the various cartoon depictions that engage us at Christmas time. He is no small thing or trinket. He is no bobble to be fooled around with in a manger scene. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he will reign. Help us to bend the knee now and worship him. To kiss the son. Lest we meet him in his anger. You alone can accomplish this in the hearts of sinners. To turn from their sin. And to follow Jesus. You soften and you harden. You bring to repentance and you condemn to hell. We pray for salvation. We pray for your Spirit's work. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.